Welcome to the Lawyerist Podcast with Sam Glover and Aaron Street. Each week, Lawyerist brings you advice and interviews to help you build a more successful law practice in today's challenging and constantly changing legal market. And now, here are Sam and Aaron. Hi, I'm Sam Glover. And I'm Aaron Street, and this is episode 133 of the Lawyerist Podcast, part of the Legal Talk Network. Today we're talking with Alex Devendra about why lawyers need to think like designers when it comes to lawyering and law practice. Today's podcast is sponsored by Ruby Receptionists and its smart, charming receptionists who are perfect for small firms. Visit callruby.com slash lawyerist to get a risk-free trial with Ruby. Today's podcast is sponsored by Clio Legal Practice Management Software. Clio makes running your law firm easier. Try it for free today at Clio.com. So, Sam, yesterday we were um, up in northern Minnesota for the Minnesota Solo Small Conference, otherwise known as Strategic Solutions for Solo and Small Firms. Mouthful. Yeah. 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 (laughs) Uh, And we did a couple of different sessions about how small firm lawyers can get great law firm websites. We did some workshops and some presentations. Um, It was really fun. It was cool to kind of live test a few small firm websites and give them feedback and tips on improvement. And a couple of takeaways from that. One is we have been talking a fair amount in the last couple of years about kind of our 10 or 11 or 12 best practices for uh, good law firm websites. And one of the things I think you and I both realized uh, yesterday as we were preparing um, is that the tips for making a great law firm website kind of bubble up to three big categories, which we've framed as strategy, usability, and design. Yeah. I mean, strategy is the most important thing, perhaps. And uh, a lot of lawyers just want a website, and there isn't a whole lot of strategy and thought that goes into it. And so we talked a lot about that. Usability is just, you know, making sure that your website does the things that it needs to do so people can use it, like being mobile responsive, um, meeting accessibility standards, and then it should look nice, which is design. Yeah, and and I think a related thing we talked a lot about yesterday was how those concepts can tie together as part of your website marketing, but broader um, your kind of consistent client experience so that your website looks and feels like the interactions they're going to have when you do intake or consultations or a welcome kit with them will look and feel like your letterhead and business cards will look and feel like your office so that when they are getting to know you through your website, they are getting to know what it will actually be like to work with you. Yeah, I kept um, using the phrase promise or the word promise. Like your, your website makes a promise to the visitor about what kind of experience they're going to have with you. If you have a slick, well-produced website and your office is a disorganized dump with, you know, falling apart furniture, you've created sort of a discordant uh, message there and and you haven't delivered on the promise of your website. On the contrary, if both your website and your law office are, are a dump, you've delivered a consistent client experience, but I think you should really reconsider that whole thing. <laughs> <laughs> so. I mean, someone would probably hire the dump lawyer, but that's a, <laughs> that's a different question. I mean, another interesting thing is kind of we got into talking about law firm websites specifically at this conference because of the expertise we've developed over the years with our annual Best Law Firm Websites contest, where we try to identify truly the best law firm websites in the country or even around the world. And one of the things 
I've been thinking a lot about is we have identified the kinds of things that would get you the best law firm website, but most people don't need the best. They don't need an A+. Mm -hmm. Most lawyers would do much, much better with just a B, and getting a B is easier than getting an A+. And so focusing on some of the low-hanging fruit of good practices um, is often just as useful as striving and working really hard and spending a lot of money to follow all of the best practices. Well, and to be clear, you know, our, our contest is weighted towards design, not, I mean, it's hard for us to go like, is this a well-converting website? We don't, we don't really right. know that unless we did extensive audits of the companies that were, or the firms. But if you go through the 10 things that we've outlined and try and check each of those boxes, you know, if you haven't forgotten those things, you're going to be doing better than most of the websites out there. I mean, even some of the contest winners don't have very clear calls to action. You know, like it's even in the top 10, some of them are missing some of the 10 things that we've identified. Yeah, that ended up being a lot of what we yeah. talked about yesterday was too many lawyers build their website because they need a website or want to rank high in Google because they've heard they should rank high in Google rather than building their website for the purpose of accomplishing a business goal, which mm -hmm. for most lawyers is getting potential clients to call them. But different firms have different goals and making sure you've clearly articulated what yours are and that you then set your website up to focus on achieving that goal and preferably clearly monitoring and measuring whether that's actually happening or not so that you can see if your investment in your website is achieving the goals you've set for yourself. So uh, I think I want to segue to my announcement that I have just finally finished work on updating our website design guide, which I'm really proud of. Yay. Um, this is its third edition. Um, I think the second edition was two or three years ago. I put in a lot of work and we talked a lot in prep for that about the things that we've learned. So there are some things that we've pulled out of the guide. Um, there are some new elements that we've included. Um, and it's 10 things that the best law firm website designs have in common. And you can get it now at lawyerist.com slash guides. If you have previously purchased it, check your email inbox. I've sent you a coupon to get 50% off of the new one. If you previously got it for free, check your inbox. I've sent you a coupon for 20% off. Yay. So I'd love for you to get that and see it. And, you know, let me know what you think. But here, continuing on the design theme, here's my conversation with Alex about why lawyers need to become design thinkers. Hi, I'm Alex Devendra. I'm co-founder and design strategist at Start Here HQ. We are a purpose-driven consultancy that helps lawyers harness the tools of modern entrepreneurship to build more scalable and sustainable law practices. So Alex, uh, before we start talking about design and law practice, um, what does Start Here HQ and like, I mean, you, you gave us the, the elevator pitch version of it, but what do you actually do for uh, lawyers and law firms and how did you come to get involved in, in this sort of thing? So I'd say what we do is help lawyers. You're, you're familiar with the people processes tools kind of trifecta that people talk about? I'm a little familiar, but I bet our listeners aren't. So, okay, so I mean, basically, it's just a philosophy that um, kind of the three legs of the tripod or whatever are your people, your processes and your tools. Mm -hmm. And um, tools seem to get a lot of attention. I think a lot of legal tech companies are essentially developing new tools for us to use. And my partners and I think that there needs to be 
an equal amount of attention paid to the people and the processes that are needed to innovate as well. So we're trying to kind of round things out a little bit in the legal innovation space. That is a huge thing that you just explained. <laughs> we we dig into that all the time, like at, at TBD Law, you know, people keep getting distracted by, oh, well, should I use Clio or my case or Rocket Matter? And we're like, no, wrong. Quite. Like, so let's, there's a time and a place to talk about tools, but let's keep an eye on the big picture and on the other things you should be thinking about. So um, I think you're totally right. Uh, lawyers just get distracted by tools all the time. And there's so much more to it in terms of business and workflow and everything. So. Exactly. Well, and it's not just lawyers. It's very easy to get caught up in the things that you think are either going to be a magic bullet or the things that feel actionable. So you want to mm -hmm. say like, oh, I need a new website or I need this. Um, and it's really hard to stop yourself and say like, okay, well, wait a minute. What am I trying to accomplish with the new website? Wh who am I trying to reach? And there's some kind of questions that need to be asked first before you can decide what the best platform is. I'm glad to hear you say that because I just got done revising our web design guide and I backed everything off to start with what are your goals and, and what's your value proposition and things like that. So yeah, no, totally. That's that's awesome. And Start Here HQ is built to help lawyers do that, it sounds like. Yes, exactly. Um, and we recognize that it can be scary to even know where to begin with these questions. And so that's how we chose our name. You just got to come to us, come to startherehq.com and we'll help you get started. So Alex, how did you... you you deal in the intersection of law and design, or at least you graft those things together. How did you wind up doing those two things? I had no formal training in design. I was not an art student or anything like that. Um, it was something that came to me or that I came to after I was already in law practice. And once I started unpacking what design was and kind of stumbled into it and its vocabulary, it was like a light bulb went on for me because it made so much sense. And when I started reading about it, it gave expression to all these ideas I'd kind of intuitively been thinking and things I'd intuitively been doing in my practice, but I didn't know mm -hmm. why. Um, and so to me, it was just a no brainer, like, oh, the law needs better design and I'm going to make that happen. <laughs> So, so before Start HQ, you'd been, I mean, you've been doing this, I think. You've been working with lawyers and law firms. Uh, what does, is, what is, like, a typical job look like for that? So it's really, it's been a growth process for me. I left law practice uh, just about two years ago. So maybe I should back up and just explain a little bit how I got into legal design. So my entree was um, reading typography for lawyers. I know you've had Butterick on the podcast. We are we are big fans. And yes. when the show notes uh, appear on lawyerist.com, they will be set in Matthew Butterick's fonts. <laughs> yes. So that was the light bulb moment for me was reading his book. And so when I initially started getting into this, it was through the lens of typography and then graphic design, visual communication design more generally. And as applied to legal work product. So I, I focused particularly on written documents that lawyers produce, um, not lawyer marketing materials, but how can these same principles be applied to the actual legal documents themselves. But kind of similar to what we were just talking about with the, the focus on the tools, I realized that just focusing on the documents was kind of ignoring some of these other bigger picture questions that we need to be asking about the future of the profession. And design can apply equally there as well. I mean, I started getting into design thinking and um, talking with others about how design can be applied kind of on a systems level to rethink how we deliver legal services. Um, and then from there, I started talking with folks like John Grant, who have been doing similar work using tools of lean and agile. 
and um, Gina Cho, who does the mindfulness and meditation for lawyers, and Kat Moon, who does project management, legal innovation as well. And we realized that there was so much overlap in these different disciplines. And really, at their core, they espouse a lot of the same ideas. And so we thought it would make sense to join forces and really figure out how to harmonize all these different conversations that are going on about what the law needs and what's lacking and figure out a way of doing that in the broadest way possible so that we're all taking advantage of all the possible tools that are out there. I feel like design sort of made its way into the public consciousness uh, sort of between Ted and Apple's rise in popularity. Um, Somewhere in there, everybody started sort of worshiping at the altar of design. And, you know, I I have wound up doing a lot of design because I I design our website, I design our publications and our materials and and things like that. And um, and I've tried to learn how to get better at that. Um, And it it now design is kind of an intuitive way for me to approach problems in the same way that my legal training is an intuitive way for me to approach legal problems. Um, And both of those feel really natural to me. But uh, I worry that people who think about law and design wonder like why are we sticking design on top of law like what what is it about that you know that that it makes sense and why should we all be thinking about law and design instead of law and high pressure sales tactics or law and other like why are we why are we adding design on what's your pitch for doing it so yeah i think that the term design can be a little challenging and you know people have preconceived notions or they just associate it with like fashion design or something and they don't they haven't been ex- exposed to it in other ways to see how broad of a term it really is so mm-hmm. for me design really just means or designing it means you know just being intentional about how you're doing something regardless of what it is that you're doing delivering legal services or you know creating apple devices and I think the power of it is that when you stop to actually think about what you're doing and try to make better choices about how you're going to go about doing it, whatever you do is naturally going to be better because you're putting more thought thought into what you're doing. Um, and I think like the research is starting to bear that out. There's a group called the Design Management Institute that did a study, 10-year study from 2004 to 2014. And they uh, the results of their study showed that businesses that are kind of design-driven or design-led companies such as Apple end up outperforming the S&P by like over 200%. Hmm. So there's really, they're really trying to make the business case for why design matters. And, um, and I think, you know, as I was saying with how I got into design, I definitely found that once I started paying attention to typography and layout of my briefs, that it made my writing better. Um, and I think the same is true of you know legal services on a on a broader scale. I mean, fun- fundamentally, it's essentially you you ask why are we doing everything that we're doing? You know, why are we doing this? Why are we doing it this way? Why are we doing it this way? And can we make it better? Is there a better way to be doing it? I, I think that's all, maybe that's an oversimplification, but that's almost really what design is, plus a set of tools to do that methodically. Exactly, and and that's where I think the folks who kind of coined the term design thinking. I mean, they basically just added the word thinking to what design already is. But like mm-hmm. people, people had such preconceived notions about design that they couldn't really see what it really was. And once we started talking about design thinking and talking more explicitly about it being a process and, um, for, you know, problem solving or whatever, like people were like, Oh, it's design thinking. Now I get it. And yeah, but it's essentially, that's what it is. And like, and you know, like the, if you think about design as 
um, being designy. Like if you look at a product and you think, wow, that's really designy. Um, the parts of it that make you say that are, are more of the art and the craft of building a product than the actual design process. You know, it's almost design are the parts that you don't notice, but that affect you anyway, I think. And maybe that's just cause I'm more of, I, I like minimalism and clean design and things like that. But, um, but I feel like it's, it's more the work that goes into it and the functional bits, um, than the, than the pretty parts. So I think the, the dictionary definition of design can actually be helpful here as well, because, uh, one of the definitions of design is simply um, a specification of an object manifested by an agent intended to accomplish goals in a particular environment using a set of primitive components satisfying a set of requirements subject to constraints, um, which I know is a mouthful. And when you think about it, it really is just saying that anything man-made is designed. But I think the the idea is that you design for specific environments and contexts and limitations. So you can say, oh, I don't like that design. It's too designy for me, or um, it's not my style. But it really has to do with the people who made that thing, whatever it is, what were they trying to accomplish? Is that the look mm-hmm. they were going for? Um, and if so, then that's fine. It, it just has to do with being intentional about choosing your approach. And I, you know, if you break all that down, it... I think one of the reasons that the idea of marrying design and law makes a lot of sense to me anyway, and I, and I assume probably to you too and to others who think about it, is that that definition or my simplistic, um, why do we do it this way and can we do it better, is really at the core of what delivering legal services is all about. Um, and so it doesn't, it, it's, not a, it's not a complete wholesale reworking of what it means to deliver legal services Although once you start being more intentional, instead of just doing things the way they've always been done, it may mean that you do them completely differently because there may be better ways to do it. And I think opening your mind up to the fact that we may be doing it wrong is sort of at the heart of what design is because you're always open to the idea that there might, there's a better way to do it and we may be doing it wrong. So Right. And I think that's where it's very useful too, but I, I kind of like to break it down. Um, yeah. So design thinking, you know, so I think some people have come across that term now and one way of describing it or is talking about the process of design thinking. And that's part of what I love about it. It gives you a framework to go through the messy process of problem solving and trying to come up with creative new solutions to a difficult problem. It involves some grappling, but at least if you have this framework to kind of tack your ideas and thoughts onto, it can help you um, navigate through that process. Um, But at the same time, design thinking is also kind of a set of mindsets that you have to cultivate in order to successfully engage in that process. Um, And one of the core mindsets is the idea of the beginner's mindset or, you know, cultivating curiosity. And I think that gets back to what you were just saying about how it's about saying, hey, well, why do we do it this way? Is there a better way to do it? That's kind of the the beginner's mindset question. And I feel like that can be at odds with the way we're trained to think as lawyers and value precedent. And I'm not saying you have to completely throw that out, but it can be helpful to just be a little bit intentional, like, okay, I'm going to be putting on the curiosity hat now and engaging in a little bit more curiosity and question asking than I might otherwise in other parts of my life or work life. So... Um, how about that design process? Can you can you break that down for us into um, the stages of design thinking? Yeah, it's generally described as a five-step process, though people have different terminology that they like to use. I like calling the first step discovery. Um, it's really where you're going out and gathering 
information um, before you start problem solving. Again, like we were just saying earlier, it's kind of like stopping yourself from going out and building the new website and first asking questions about who is it for and what am I trying to do? So that's what you do in the discovery phase. You kind of try to interview clients, um, get their perspective, kind of unpack your insights about them. And this is like the, don't presume that you already know how to do this. Like it's force yourself to go and investigate, um, especially with the people for whom you're trying to solve the problem. So clients. Exactly. And oftentimes they will have a very different idea of what their problem is than you do. Mm-hmm. Um, and that can be really surprising is that you think you've identified a problem that needs solving. And when you talk to the people who are the ones grappling with it on a day-to-day basis, they may have a totally different conception of their reality than, than you see from the outside. And it's not to say one is right or wrong, but you have to kind of unpack that and figure out what's going on and, and what people... Yeah, because the legal issue is only one aspect of the problem that your clients usually need solved, right? Like, um, think of a startup, uh, you know, a fast-moving startup company. The problem they need solved is to move past this obstruction to their business if somebody's threatening them with a lawsuit, for example. Or maybe that maybe there's even more to it, or maybe it's different, but but often the winning the copyright battle is not the problem they need solved. It's getting this thing, putting it behind them so they can keep going on their product, which is actually what they care about. Or or if it's a, a divorce, you know, what the problem they need solved maybe is get, getting the separation done with a minimum of trouble with their spouse or something like that. And you may think you know it, but until you really talk to your clients about it, and that's such a critical step, you won't know for sure. Exactly. And I, I think there's a great example of this. There's a firm in Seattle called Foundry Law Group. Mm-hmm. And I love their website because they use the same language that I think their clients probably do. They work with, they do IP law for small businesses. But on their website, they don't say we do IP law. They say we help protect your business assets, mm-hmm. um, which is really the ultimate goal. Like you don't go out and register trademarks because that's what we do. You do it because you want the protection that goes along with that. Well, let's be clear. Most people don't go around talking about intellectual property. Um, Lawyers do, (laughs) but other people don't. Right, right. So just kind of reframing how you're talking about it or thinking about like the end goals can really change how you describe things. So uh, step one is uh, discover. Do interview your users, your clients, your customers. um, Find out the nature of the problem and their pain points. Number two is? Um, Then you have to kind of synthesize all that information, all the observation you've been doing, kind of unpack your notes from your interviews. And if you're familiar with design thinking or you Google it, you'll see lots of post-it notes and you know people putting things on walls and stuff like that. And p- part of the reason for that is that it's very helpful in the synthesis process to make your ideas visual, get, get them out of your head onto paper and on sticky notes so you can move them around and say, oh, hey, like this insight I had during this interview is similar to something I jotted down over here when I was talking to this other person. You can move those closer together on the wall and start kind of clustering things around themes that you're noticing. Our brain is really good at um, pattern recognition. And so to make Mm -hmm. these thoughts visual helps you start putting, connecting the dots. And I think the important thing to notice is we're on step two and we have not started trying to solve the problem yet, which we're not going to do in step three either, right? Right. So brainstorming, um, you can start Basically, the transition from synthesizing into brainstorming is where you 
you've unpacked your ideas, you've kind of started to home in on who your target client is or what their problem is. And you want, what, you, what you want to do is then formulate a question at the end of the synthesis phase, which is the jumping off point for your brainstorming. Uh, you're going to ask yourself, how might we help so-and-so client with X problem that we've identified? Um, but you have to leave the question broad enough or open-ended enough for there be, to be one more than one possible solution. Um, so the whole point of brainstorming is to get possible solutions out on the table to consider. It's not about critiquing the solutions yet or picking the right, quote unquote, right one. Um, and it, again, that's where I think it can be challenging because as lawyers, we're so good at issue spotting. So as soon as we say an idea, we start thinking why it's not going to work or what, mm-hmm. what the flaws are. And really, that's not the point of brainstorming. You want to try and just tell yourself, okay, that's not the type of thinking I'm supposed to be engaged in right now. I'm going to set that aside. That's for later. Right now, it's about um, going for volume, getting all the ideas down, and then you can move on to, well, so step four is prototyping. So in that step, you do have to choose one or more ideas to um, carry forward. So the the transition from brainstorming to prototyping, that's when you put on the hat of um, critical thinking and trying to identify which of these possible brainstorm ideas should I yeah. pursue first? And then, so, you know, one of the things I like about this process is it really lays out there, like, there are a bunch of, there are a bunch of steps before um, you start criticizing things. <laughs> and it's really important because you need to throw ideas out there and see what they really look like. Um, you know, we, we try to do this a lot at TBD Law by, you know, taking the ideas out, fleshing them out, seeing what they look like, and, and then once you have a really good idea of what the idea is, is, then you can start criticizing it and deciding whether or not it might be something you want to do. Um, but it's, it's not fair to criticize an idea that you've thrown up in a brainstorming session. It's not about safe spaces or anything ridiculous like that. It's, it's about like, let's, let's actually just give ourselves, our brains the room to play and come up with crazy ideas and see what may or may not work. And then only in the final step do you actually start picking some things to, well, the final two steps, you start picking things to try and then trying them out. Right. And, and it is an iterative process. You know, we talk about it being five steps, but really it's a circle, well, it's a circle because you end up going back. So for example, prototyping, you start building out a couple of your ideas and you may in that initial prototyping realize, oh, that's not actually as great a solution as I thought it was, or mm-hmm. devil's in the details. I'm not sure how that would actually work in practice. Uh, so you can scrap that and move on to something else. Or maybe you build a prototype and you think it's really great, and then you take it into step five, which, which is testing. You take it back to your potential users, your clients, and um, ask them for feedback. And that's where it might encounter reality, and you'll say, oh, it's actually not People don't even know what it's for. They don't know how to um, use it the way I thought they would. Or they might have other um, criticisms for you that you then need to take back to the drawing board. So really testing then takes you back to that first discovery phase because you're learning new things about your clients that they might not have told you during that first interview. But now that you've presented them with a possible solution, they're saying, oh, well, actually, yeah, yeah, I said that's what I wanted, but what I really want is this other thing. So in in other words, the design thinking process is never really done. Um, You have to keep circling back to the beginning and starting over, and it's a process of continual improvement. Does that, is that right? Yes. And you'll come across that term of continuous improvement or incremental improvement in other disciplines as well, you know, that has a, a history in the lean and agile contexts too. 
And so, yeah, it's it's finding these kind of bedrock principles and, and carrying those forward. Very cool. So we need to take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. And when we come back, I'd like to try and make this a little more concrete um, and introduce a tool that you have to help lawyers do design thinking. Um, and maybe we can just introduce uh, a, a hypothetical where we'll we'll kind of walk through it and give you some tools to start thinking about how to do this in your own practice. So we'll be back in a few minutes. This podcast is supported by Ruby Receptionists. As a matter of fact, Ruby answers our phones at Lawyerist, and my firm was a paying Ruby customer before that. Here's what I love about Ruby. When I'm in the middle of something, I hate to be interrupted, so when the phone rings, it annoys me, and that often carries over into the conversation I have after I pick up the phone. Which is why I'm better off not answering my own phone. Instead, Ruby answers the phone, and if the person on the other end asks for me, a friendly, cheerful receptionist from Ruby calls me and asks if I want them to put the call through. It's a buffer that gives me a minute to let go of my annoyance and be a better human being during the call. If you want to be a better human being on the phone, give Ruby a try. Go to callruby.com slash lawyerist to sign up, and Ruby will waive the $95 setup fee. If you aren't happy with Ruby for any reason, you can get your money back during your first three weeks. I'm pretty sure you'll stick around, but since there is no risk, you might as well try. Imagine what you could do with an extra eight hours per week. You could invest in marketing your firm, you could spend more time helping clients in need, or you could catch your daughter's soccer game. That's how much time legal professionals save with Clio, the world's leading practice management software. With Clio, tracking time, billing, and matter management are fast and easy, giving you more time to focus on what really matters. And Clio is a complete practice management platform with plenty of tools and over 50 integrations to help you automate daily tasks such as document generation and court calendaring. See how the right software can make it easier to manage your practice. Try Clio for free today at Clio.com. Okay, we're back. So Alex, um, we are going to be including in the show notes uh, a link to download the Practice Model Canvas, uh, which is a tool that you've developed um, with your partners at Start Here HQ to help lawyers apply design thinking in their own practices. But is there an example that we can use to kind of walk through some of the design thinking steps or, um, or pull it out and use the practice model canvas to think through a problem? We talked about using the practice model canvas as a way to design a new legal product or legal service. Um, mm -hmm. And even kind of that concept of designing legal products, like what does that even mean? Um, how do I do that if I'm in a firm? If you start thinking about how you practice, what your clients need, how you could do that better, I think ideas will naturally start to bubble up for people. Mm -hmm. And one, so it's not about just like creating some new thing that didn't exist before. It's about looking at what you're already doing and improving on it. Like we just talked about. One example that comes to mind is a lot of firms uh, that do employment law, like management side employment law, um, they still tend to bill by the hour, have pretty traditional practices. But for certain things like employee handbooks, they may already kind of be doing it on a flat fee basis, sort of, um, mm -hmm. because they've realized that you know their clients only want to pay so much for it, or it generally takes X amount of time, and that times my hourly rate is Y amount, so I'm, I'm just going to quote them that. I call this fake value billing. Yes, exactly. So... Um, <laughs> So I was talking to a firm that wanted to bring us in to do some consulting and sure enough in their employment group, like different partners kind of had their own sort of flat fee model for employee handbooks, but it was, it was not consistent throughout the group. 
And they'd also... It's more like we just always bill two hours for that or 10 hours for that. Right. Or, or even like I that. think different partners were billing different amounts, maybe. Sure. But, they, but it was based on <laughs> how long they thought it would take them to do it or their associate to do it. Yeah. So that's a great place to start because it's something you've already kind of thought about packaging as a service or a product, but there's a lot more work that can be done to make that successful. Cause you, yeah, because you're basically half-assing it at that point. You're not really committing to let's deliver this thing as a product. Right. And and that can hurt you because you don't know if you're actually getting what you need from it. And, you know, it's maybe not great for the client either. So why not mm -hmm. um, spend a little time refining it? So how would you start? How did you start thinking through that? And, and what should people do if, if first, you know, I'm doing something this way. Um, how, how do you start unpacking that and starting over or doing it differently? So on the practice model canvas, there's a lot of different boxes um, and they're numbered. The funny thing is we have two number ones. So we have the problem <laughs> box and the customer box. And that's because we think they're both equally important. So you kind of have to talk about the customer problem pairing and um, figure out, you know, learn about your customer, your client, also learn about their problems. In this case, like what they need out of their employee handbook or what their challenges are. Another thing you have to do when you're exploring the problem is also think about what other solutions exist out there. And so I know with employee handbooks, there's a lot of resources online where you, that claim to sell state specific handbooks for like $400 or something. Mm -hmm. So that's, you know, a legitimate thing you're going to have to research. And I've never paid the money to download it, but I'm really curious to know what the quality's like. <laughs> uh, I hope, I'm sure somebody has, and I'm sure there's reasons why you might prefer to go with a real live lawyer that can totally customize your handbook as opposed to the $400 one you can get online. Right. But as the lawyer, you have to know what that competition looks like so that you can describe what your value add is and why you're charging more than that and what the difference is. And maybe for some people, the $400 version is what they need um, and or they can't really afford more if they're not really at a stage of their business where it makes sense. And that helps you home in on your ideal client too. Like you say, okay, well, these people in this stage of business, I shouldn't actually be trying to sell them my my handbook because I'm not selling at their price point. Um, and that helps you get more clarity on who you're helping and, um, helps you think about, you know, what channels to market to them in, um, what's the most effective way of reaching them. So that's another box on the canvas is thinking through like, okay, how am I actually going to find my ideal client? Um, what am I going to tell them about my product and how it's different than the other things out there? And then also like on the financial side, maybe is there a way for you to charge less? How could you routinize your processes so that uh, it doesn't take you quite as much time to make each one? And these, these boxes are numbered, but I can see myself going back and forth, right? Like as I learn more about the customer and the problem and the way those fit together, um, I'm going to test out some ideas for s solutions and what the value is. And as I get to revenue streams, like maybe maybe it's starting to look like a flat fee product, but maybe maybe that requires me to go back and edit some of the other boxes. Is that does that sound right, or is this generally kind of a linear no, thing no, that you expect people to do? No, no, it's it's exactly what we were talking about earlier with it being an iterative process. I mean, right at the top of the canvas, we have a box where you can note what version you're on because you <laughs> you are going to make more than one of these, and you're going to tweak it over yeah. time. And we, we have a box for key metrics and that's really important too. You have to figure out how you're going to, 
what you're going to track in order to know whether this is working or not and if you're making enough money off it. I guess it occurs to me that, you know, as we said earlier, everybody has already designed the way they deliver legal services, even if they didn't do it very intentionally. Maybe if people aren't sure how to get into the design process uh, with the stuff they're already doing, step one is actually to figure out how you measure what you're already doing so that, because you're, you're basically in between the uh, prototyping and the test phase right now. Yes. Is that, am I, am I, is that no, crazy? But I'm trying to figure out like, what's the entry point? No, that point? is a great, that is a great point. Yes, you should. And, and it's true that like a lot of lawyers don't actually know the metrics of their practice as it currently is, mm -hmm. or don't have a lot of, it's not top of mind anyway, though. They're like, Oh, I can look that up for you. If I ask them a question, <laughs> but, right? Like, you know, you know how much revenue you bring in in the month, but you're not actually paying attention to how much do you make from a given client for this type of a service versus how much did it cost you to acquire that client in the first place? Right. And I think a lot of times we just have assumptions about it and figuring out how you're going to track it so you can know whether it's a success or not, or, and then, and then experimenting like, okay, I'm going to tweak this and see if it gets more profitable. That That is definitely one of the, the, the first things you have to do. We had another client where they kept talking about something similar to handbooks kind of being a loss leader. They're like, oh yeah, well, you know, we, we charge a really small amount for them, but you know, it's a loss leader. And we're like, well, do you even know what loss leader means? Like, <laughs> first of all, are you losing money on them? Like, do you even know? Mm -hmm. Um, and like how much time are you spending on them? Like, are you tracking whether those clients come back to you for more business or bring you referrals? That's what a loss leader is. But if you're not actually tracking the referrals and the and the lifetime value of the client, how do you really know? Maybe it's not a loss. <laughs> maybe it's profitable. It's right. just not as profitable as some other lines. Or maybe of work. your loss isn't leading to anything. Right. In which case, yeah. maybe you should <laughs> stop doing them. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that that's a possible outcome. Every time, every time you start measuring and testing and um, and going through the discovery and synthesis process that one of the possibilities is we should not be doing this, or there's no way for us to do this profitably, um, or there's no way to fit this, um, to our clients needs within the kind of value that we can get out of it. Right. And I think so. there was like a Seth Godin blog post recently that was on a similar theme, like the idea that you should never quit. You know, I think people hear that a lot, like, oh, if you just stick with it, it'll work. But in reality, like successful people quit a lot of times. They don't quit the overall strategy, like the main goal, but they quit the little things they're doing, the tactics they're trying. They measure them. And if mm -hmm. they're not working, yeah, quit that tactic. Try something else. Try a different way of reaching And, and quit it as soon as possible. Yeah. <laughs> if it doesn't work, you want to know that as soon as possible. You mentioned the responsive organization when we were prepping for this. Uh, tell me about the responsive org movement and what that means and how it might intersect with firms. Evolution of my study into design, like I said, started with typography and graphic design, went through design thinking, and more recently I've been focused on organization design, and I've uh, been doing some reading by org design consultancies about the importance of kind of marrying design thinking with org design because even if you are successful at using the design thinking process and thinking creatively about how you're going to change the way you deliver legal services, unless you're a true solo, like you work with other people. And in order for you to implement that new idea successfully, you're going to have to bring them along with you on that journey and work with them to implement it. And that's where these principles of org design and like how we communicate as a team, how we delegate decision-making authority like without that, you can't do much with the results of your design thinking process. The two really go hand in hand. Um, and so I've been really fascinated 
learning more and more about org design and how those principles could be applied to help law firms, legal departments, any sort of group of lawyers that are working together as a team um, do better. Because, well, because any, anybody listening can see the natural progression here. Um, you know, you uh, you print out the practice model canvas um, and you, you spend weeks uh, thinking about how can we um, how can we maximize the value of our employee handbooks and minimize the time it takes us to put into it, but we, we make them better and faster and easier to deliver, and you bring this back in to your boss or your partner or, or the managing attorney or whatever, you say, I figured it out, look at this amazing thing, and they basically just shrug. Or, or they're like, well, screw it, we're not doing that, then we make less money or something like that. You know, you, you, you can't change the organization one um, legal service, legal solution at a time, um, you need an organization that supports this way of thinking from the bottom up. Right. And, and I think the other part of it is that traditional organizational structures that have, were developed over the last century or more were developed with certain goals in mind, namely referred to as like control and command um, hierarchy. Mm-hmm. The idea that you want the organization to be predictable and you want to have control over it. And the reality is that in the 21st century, the world in which we live is so different and so much less certain that that organizational model doesn't really work with the type of work we need to do now. We need to be more nimble um, and more able to respond to changing conditions. And if you have a very hierarchical, um, controlling environment where there's a lot of planning involved in making any minute change, um, that setup isn't really going to work for this iterative incremental improvement approach. Yeah, well, I mean, the, the old business structures don't even work for normal people, right? I mean, <laughs> this idea that everyone can be at work uh, 40, 60, 80 hours a week and not have family responsibilities or a life or anything like that. I mean, the, there's a reason why firms are so lopsidedly male, um, and there are a reason why firms are having a hard time reaching uh, out to millennials. And um, it, there's a whole host of reasons why business in general, but law firms in particular, need to change the way they do things. Um, and this is this is a way to think through how you restructure a law firm so that uh, everybody who works there can be happier, all the clients who it serves can be happier, and the value that you produce and the value of the legal solutions that you deliver can increase. Well said. I totally agree. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you so much for being with us. I guess we can I can climb off my soapbox here and help you down. And um, <laughs> I am so glad that we finally talked about uh, design and law on the podcast. And if people are more interested, um, like I said, we'll include the practice model canvas in the show notes for today. Um, Alex has been writing about this on her own blog, um, and we'll include a link for that. Or, you know, what we can just geek out about it in the comments. So thanks, Alex, and everybody else. I guess we'll see you in your in the comments or in your responses or whatever. Thanks. My pleasure. Make sure to catch next week's episode of The Lawyerist Podcast. If you'd like more information about today's show, please visit lawyerist.com slash podcast or legaltalknetwork.com. You can subscribe via iTunes or anywhere podcasts are found. Both Lawyerist and The Legal Talk Network can be found on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn, and you can download the free app from Legal Talk Network in Google Play or iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by Legal Talk Network. Nothing said during this podcast is legal advice. 